Hello. I am Marion Walker, president of Focus on Faith. And uh, thank you all for coming this Focus on Faith weekend. I'm going to turn over the podium now to Dick Darden, who will introduce our guest. Good morning. Um, a lot of you might not be familiar with Focus on Faith, but I, um, it's, it's the most fun committee of the church. Uh, <laughs> it really is. And, uh, you should aspire to be on it at some point in time because we've uh, we've been privileged to have a lot of really good speakers and uh, Charles was here before and I didn't want anybody to have the misapprehension as to the role with which he is uh, displaying today. Um, he is um, the director of uh, major gifts for Columbia Seminary but he has been restrained from hitting you for donations at this time because we are here for education only today. I reminded Charles of that. So, um, anyway, uh, he was uh, interesting background. Uh, his parents were being missionaries who liked places. Uh, he started at Davidson, uh, then uh, got his uh, master's at Duke and then PhD at Princeton. And uh, during that time, he um, was part of the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which is like, I guess, like the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, which is a collegiate kind of Christian ministry to, uh, met his wife there, so. Uh, if you can direct your children to all the right places, that would be the right places. Um, from there, he goes to Louisville as director of the Office of Theology and Worship. Um, and uh, from there, he has come down to Columbia Seminary uh, to be also part of the adjunct faculty. So he's both in a staff role uh, in major gifting for Columbia Seminary and uh, part of the faculty. And it's as part of the faculty that he's here today. Um, he uh, has a wife and a daughter at home and he has a son in Montreal who's learning to speak French, I hope. Okay. <laughs> and um, he's a, a devoted cyclist and woodworker. He's leaving here today to pick up samples, I guess, of pecan and maple and cherry. Cherry. And <laughs> mostly cherry wood. Um, he, at, uh, at Louisville, he worked on the Book of Confessions uh, and particularly in retranslating the Heidelberg Confession and the Nicene Creed. So, uh, Charles comes from a varied uh, background education-wise and uh, was the most engaging speaker at our dinner last night and uh, very nice. Is David Riggelstein here today? He was very nice to host us last night and uh, we we're hoping to recruit him in today. But, uh, 
We'll let Charles pick up from right here. If you never had a chance to be introduced like that, it's great because you sound so much better than you are in real life. So uh, it works for me. Um, I am going to use a lot of maps today. And I was told when I got here that y'all are getting ready to replace this uh, overhead projector. I affirm that instinct. Uh, some of these maps won't be quite as easy to see as I had hoped, but I'll try to talk you through them. So uh, this grows out, I taught American Christianity at Columbia last fall. And Columbia Seminary, 30 years ago, was about 90% Presbyterians, about 90% white. And a lot of American church history was taught through the lens of the Puritans, and then Southern Presbyterians, and you sort of told that story. Now, 35% of our students are African-American, 20% of our students are international. We have a lot of Korean students, and we're in greater Atlanta. Uh, five miles from our campus is Clarkston, which has eight, and three couples, we choose a different immigrant restaurant every, every mo month and go to a different place. Next, we're doing Laotian. And so immigration is this constant presence within Atlanta. Uh, so the Atlanta that was sort of uh, white Atlanta and black Atlanta is still kind of there, but immigrant Atlanta <laughs> is, one of the, is one of the leading things about that. And when you talk about the church in the United States, it's often easy to use old categories. So we still talk about mainline Protestants. So how many of you know what the Church of God in Christ is? Four hands. Church of God in Christ is four times the size of the Presbyterian Church USA and is the largest black Pentecostal denomination in the country. Denzel Washington is the most famous member of a Kojic church. All that to say is when you talk about American Christianity and you start with the Puritans and kind of leave it there, you miss a lot of the dynamic of what is going on in the United States. So that's what we're going to try to talk about. The first map is uh, one of the more uh, unfortunate with the overhead, but I wanted to make one point. So... When you talk about immigration in North America, and I'm not going to talk about Native American spirituality because that's a complicated story within all this, and it's an important one, just one I can't talk about today. Um, it's hard to distinguish the French and the Spanish on this, but I just wanted to say, in the middle of the 16th century, 17th century, the places where the Spanish were were Florida, Texas, and up through California. Uh, that is still the dominant religious mode in those places. Spanish Catholicism uh, is still there, even enduring 500 years later. That's a small point, but an important point. Now this is a little hard to see, but I'll try to talk you through it. This is immigration from Europe in, um, well, almost all from Europe, uh, in the late, uh, in the mid-1700s. And the things to notice are the kind of grayish that is the largest along the whole coast, that's where the English were predominant. There's a couple places uh, right in the Carolinas where it's light blue, kind of in the central. That's where the Highland Scots were. Charleston and then up in that area. And then the two other colors I want to point out are the purple who are on the west. The purple are, uh, depending on what you want to call them, either the Scotch-Irish or the Ulster Scots. I tend to use the term Ulster Scots because it underlines that they were Scots. Um, and so you know that they're really Protest Scottish Protestants, not Irish Catholics. <laughs> um, 
if you know that history. And then the other color to notice is the brown color that's in Virginia, North Carolina, and down on the lower coast. That's where Africans, enslaved Africans, were the uh, majority population. Um, one of the things to notice there on immigration patterns, and uh, I don't have a real great uh, schematic for this, but some immigrant populations come to a coastal area and stay. And some immigrant populations come to the uh, port of entry and go barreling through. <laughs> so for instance, you have large Italian and Irish populations in New York City. You have large populations of every immigrant you can think of in New York City. The Ulster Scots or the Scots-Irish tended not to stay on the coast. And they, so even though they're actually more recent immigrants of the, uh, of the colors on this, they're the ones who went the furthest west. The Highland Scots generally came earlier, and the Scotch-Irish came later, but the Scotch-Irish went to the hills and other places. Um, so that's a really early picture of uh, European immigration and African immigration. The other immigration that you have to talk about is the immigration of enslaved Africans. This, uh, these are the... Uh, routes by which uh, slaves were uh, taken from West Africa and transported to uh, South America, the Caribbean, and North America. Uh, Dick mentioned I was born in Suriname. The arrow that says, I don't know if you can see it, Dutch Guyanas, that's where I was born, and my parents were missionaries among escaped African slaves, um, uh, not, uh, not South, native South Americans. Um, I told the story last night, I guess I'll tell it today. Uh, in Ghana, where I've been, uh, some of you may have been, there are three Dutch slave castles, they called them, fortresses, where um, slaves were held, imprisoned, until they were put on ships. And uh, I, when I was there, you can stand at the top of the chute, and the chute is like where you would, uh, like for a cattle chute, where human beings were put in the chute to go down to the ships to be transported. And when you stand at the chute, you can turn to the right and see the top of the slave castle where the Dutch Reformed Church with the cross on top of it sits. Uh, saying last night that symbolism sometimes is subtle and sometimes it just slaps you upside the head. And uh, the transportation of enslaved Africans uh, into uh, North America and into the colonies is uh, uh, an immense uh, problem, I think, for us. And um, well, I don't want to go too build up to the Civil War. That's, those are just the facts. Uh, this is a picture of what a slave uh, boat looked like and how slaves were arranged on it so you could have as many as possible on the boat. Um, and uh, as you can see, they were just stacked like lumber. Like um, I just think it's an important reminder when we talk about how people moved here, how they got here. Um, this is uh, where slaves were held in, uh, er, in 1790. Uh, Carolinas, Virginia, West Virginia, and then up into the Northeast. The darker is where slaves were more dense. By 1860, this is where slaves were almost completely out of the Northeast, uh, the Mason-Dixon line starts to show, 
And as you can see, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas start to become where slaves are most dense uh, in population, along with the Carolinas. Um, we'll talk a little bit later about uh, further movement of African-Americans in the United States. Oh, actually, we're going to talk about it now. Ah. This one, I'm sorry, this is a little hard to read, but I don't know. Some people know this really. Every, some, I never know if everyone knows this or not. Uh, but starting at the beginning of the 20th century, there were two great migrations of African-Americans. So in 1880, 80, 90 percent of all African-Americans in the United States were in the South. They were in Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina. Uh, when you think about urban centers that have large black populations, they didn't have them in, 18, you know, in 1880. Uh, there, there are two places, and you can see where the darker dots at the bottom are where uh, African-American population got the smallest or reduced the most, and those uh, kind of brownish, denser places is where they went to. So you can see the first time it's Chicago, Detroit, kind of Philadelphia, where the Great Migration goes. And then the second time, it's the, those same places, but New York becomes more prominent, but New Orleans becomes a big destination. And then you can see Los Angeles and San Francisco become large destination. And this is when African-American population becomes diffuse within the United, at least within certain parts of the United States. Um, uh, so you have part of what shapes the church, Southern Christianity, so to speak, into the North. Uh, and that's another uh, factor. Uh, so for instance, um, many churches, if you go to a church in Birmingham, a, a mostly white church, and you go to a church in, I don't know, Connecticut, it might feel really different. But if you go to an African-American church in Birmingham and you go to an African-American church in Connecticut, it'll often feel very similar. And that's because of the way the Great Migration worked, where Southern African-Americans went to the North and uh, established that culture there. So a little bit about immigration law. Now, there are, I know there are a lot of lawyers here, an unhealthy amount of lawyers here. So I may get this wrong, but it goes something like this. Until the late 19th century, immigration in the United States was unregulated. If you showed up, you were in. Period. Uh, that only changed in 1882 with the Chinese Exclusion Act. There were folks on the West Coast who were worried there were too many Chinese folks coming in, and basically an act, was, uh, an act came in that prohibited Chinese immigration into the United States. Uh, so that is the first barrier or the first regulation on China. So when you think, a lot of folks, when they think um, immigration, they think Ellis Island and the processing of immigrants. That's later. In the 19th century, it was just the docks. <laughs> you know, people got off the boat and walked in. Nobody said anything. It was just, if you came, you were in. Um, what happens in the late 19th century is... Um, a lot of immigration up to that point had been first English, then Germans and Irish and such. But in the late 19th century, a lot of Italians and a lot of Jews start showing up in the United States. And this make, started making people nervous about these folks. Um, these were not the Northern Europeans that they thought of the United States being. And so for... Um, 
a number of, there was a lot of attempts to start restricting immigration uh, because of this. Uh, and then they started doing, they started setting up literacy tests, they started, set, Ellis Island is set up, they started making ways for people to be screened to come in. This culminated in, uh, wait, how did I get there? Oh, I'm hitting the wrong button. This culminated in the Immigration Act of 1924. In an Immigration Act of 1924, I think I skipped a slide, um, quotas were put in. And what it basically said is very few Italians can come in, very few Southern Europeans, Eastern Europeans were all limited. And what they tried to do was to uh, make big quotas for the English, the Scots, the Irish, uh, Germans, Scandinavians. What turned out was all those waves of those countries of people coming in didn't really want to immigrate to the United States anymore. And so what happened is instead of encourage, instead of uh, you know, tens of thousands of English showing up, nobody showed up. And immigration came, was severely restricted. Uh, this was uh, uh, fought against for a whole number of years. And this system, although it, it generally, it started getting a little more liberal, so to speak, over time, didn't change until 19, oh, the other thing in 1924, no immigration from the Far East. No Japanese, no Chinese, no Koreans, uh, and there was no immigration from Africa. Now, you may say, well, there could have, must have been someone. It's not that there was absolutely no one. There might have been a, you know, a, an extraordinary person who was allowed in, but people in numbers couldn't come in. Um, under uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson, 1964 was the next big immigration act. And the biggest thing it did was it got rid of all quotas. Any, um, this was huge. And um, it also did something, it's now often referred to derisively as chain migration. It was referred to at the time as family unification, which is if I come in uh, as an immigrant from Romania, then my family has priority to come in and join me. And that happened, so um, uh, we'll talk about Koreans in a minute, but we'll, you'll, uh, there's been a lot of Korean immigration over the last 40 years, and that has been family by family, where uh, families join. And in, because of that, immigration since 1964 is often highly clustered because uh, families are coming in, they come with people they know. So we were talking about Koreans last night. Uh, if you want to find a lot of Koreans, you go to northern New Jersey, you go to Atlanta, you go to Southern California. Doesn't mean there aren't any anywhere else, but three quarters of them are in three areas in the United States. If you want to find uh, uh, Lebanese and Middle Eastern Americans, understand it's not, but that family unification has led to a lot of clustering. Um, and so countries in Asia, in Latin America that were really never allowed to come in uh, were, were allowed to come in. Uh, Oh, and also, uh, this was the other thing. This was uh, one of the most ironic parts. Uh, in order to, again, try to favor the northern European countries, they prioritized skilled immigrants. The skilled immigrants turned out to be Indian doctors 
not Welsh engineers. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, it actually reversed the intent. Um, someone told me, and this is one of those things that I wouldn't want to have published, but I, that there are 4,000 Ghanaian MDs in greater New York metro area. That is what happened when you prioritize skilled immigrants. Uh, my family doctor, our family doctor, is Ghanaian. Um, and it's not unusual, uh, it's not unusual lots of places to have immigrant doctors, but I think uh, my nephrologist is from Southeast Asia. My, you know, it's, every doctor I go to is from, uh, was born in another country. Yes. Yes, it's, a, it's just one of the uh, interesting ironies of that uh, act. Uh, since 1965, 50% of all immigrants are from Latin America. The notion that there are Hondurans and Dominicans and Guatemalans in large numbers is a recent phenomenon. 25% uh, are from Asia. Again, an, after the Chinese Exclusion Act uh, and, the, and Japanese immigrants as laborers that came in mostly in like the 19th uh, century, so, uh, about 10 miles from my house, I went to a Korean barbecue restaurant and I asked our waiter how many were within a five minute drive. And he counted 18 different Korean barbecue restaurants off that exit. There are 100,000 Koreans that live in that area, including two monster Presbyterian Church USA congregations. Uh, probably the largest attendance Presbyterian churches in the Presbytery are now Korean. Uh, um, so it's not just ethnicity. There are a lot, there are, uh, a lot of Filipino Roman Catholics, uh, mainline Protestants. Tend to be Baptist, Pentecostals, Catholics, uh, etc. So this is... Um, I, uh, it's another one I sort of regret the coloring, but this is a graphic representation of the or country of origin of immigrants from eight, 1800 to 19, uh, 1990 or so. And what you'll see is, I, I bet you can tell where the Immigration Act of 1924 happened, right? <laughs> you can spot 1924. No one's coming in, right? <laughs> Everything to the left of that Oh, oh, the other thing, this leaves off the 18th century where you get the huge waves of Scots, Scots and English and Welsh uh, and Germans. Uh, everything to the left is the dominant uh, immigrant groups before 1924. And what you'll see is nothing on the right matches up with what's on the left. All the countries that were dominant before 1924 are not present. Uh, uh, they did a great thing helping us identify the Irish. We were talking about the Irish potato famine last night. You can tell when the Irish came in, the big uh, bright green blop in the middle, <laughs> uh, a huge number in a shorter period of time. Um, uh, there's actually a, a fair number of Russians who come in uh, in the 19th century, that red uh, hump in the, on the left. But what you have on the right you see the black at the top? Those are folks from the African continent. You don't, they weren't immigrating uh, on the left. 
red as Mexico. Even though there have been Mexican Americans for a long time, actual immigration from Mexico to the United States is a ra rather recent phenomenon um, in large numbers. Um, anyway, uh, so since, uh, since 1964, the largest immigrant groups are from the Philippines, Mexico, Korea, Guatemala, um, also uh, India. Uh, these are who's coming in. Uh, the second largest Hindu temple in the United States is two miles from my house. Uh, it looks like the Taj Mahal. It's just a giant thing. Uh, that was not there 10 years ago. And um, that's another part of the changing religious world because of immigration. Um, this is another way of charting it. So if you, um, uh, purple, I'm sorry, is Europe. So starting in 1900, no, 1960, sorry. It's hard for me to see those myself. Europe is the purple. That's the percentage of immigrants that were coming from Europe in 1960. Uh, and uh, the Americas, which is Central and South America, and Asia are the green and red. So that's what's happened in the last 60 years. Uh, Europeans are down, way down, to about 10%, 15%, something like that, and are completely dwarfed by immigrants coming from Latin and Central America and from Asia. And that will continue to change American Christian life. Um, when one thinks about the, um, so for Presbyterians, we tend to think, oh, what are the, like, what are the big churches in Atlanta? Well, First Presbyterian, Central Presbyterian, you know, Peachtree Presbyterian. They're not in the top 25 in the city <laughs> in terms of attendance. Uh, you have black megachurches, you got white megachurches, you got Hispanic Pentecostal churches. They're the ones... Uh, in some cases, one of those congregations is the same size as the five largest Presbyterian churches put together. Uh, may not have the same wealth or the same you know, civic influence, but in terms of numbers, it's, it's dramatic. Um, I have, every day I drive to work, I'm within three minutes of a, I'm three minutes of a Hindu temple and I drive by a mosque every day. Uh, I don't actually drive by a Presbyterian church on the way to work. <laughs> um, so that's just another change. So I've talked a lot about immigration and migration. But what I haven't talked about too much are four really important groups that actually don't fit that. I have not talked about Baptists. I have not talked about Methodists. I haven't talked about Mormons. And I've only touched a little bit on Pentecostals. And that's because those four groups in the United States are primarily uh, grow, grew through conversion, not through immigration. That is, very few Baptists have immigrated to the United States, very few Methodists. Pentecostals and Mormons were born here. So this is a map of the predominant religious traditions in the United States as of 1990. And the red, this is, this is for real. This is a real story. So in, the, uh, in Scotland, 
there was this uh, deep belief that you needed to repent before you took communion. And so they would have communion four times a year, and you couldn't take communion unless you got a communion token. Some folks last night had never heard of communion tokens. You were given a coin that your church had so that when you were admitted to the table, and it actually was a table, you'd sit at a table, you would give a coin so that you could come and take communion. The coin set basically symbolized that you had sufficiently repented. I know some of you are in trouble right now, but you had to sufficiently repent. Well, because folks weren't repenting as sufficiently as they should, they started having services of repentance that would lead up to a communion service for three or four or five days. And as these grew in Scotland, they started becoming these kind of festivals, and people would come from all around to them. And they were, uh, Robert Burns, the poet, called them holy fairs. And in his most memorable line, he said, more children were begot than souls saved at the holy fairs. <laughs> he, has a, he has a poem called Holy Fairs. You can look it up. Anyway, um, over time, when the Presbyterians started coming to, uh, to North America, and these Ulster Scots, or Scots-Irish, after the Revolutionary War, they sort of went over the Alleghenies into West Virginia and Kentucky, there was a whole bunch of lawless Scots-Irish out there. About 20% of them went to church. It was, uh, it was sort of like a, what you picture as the Wild West and Westerns, a lot of guns and drinking and partying and all this stuff. And the Presbyterians started having these services of repentance that led to communion. In the, early, uh, in the early 1800s, these started growing and growing and growing. And in 1803, in a little town... 1,000 and 30,000 people showed up at this communion service for services of repentance leading to communion. The short story, I won't tell you the long story. The short story is the Presbyterian, all this wild stuff started happening. People started barking like dogs and falling, uh, falling down and things that you might associate with Pentecostalism. All these wild things started going on. And the short story is the Presbyterians did two things. They said, we've got to train our ministers better. This is a little weird. And uh, we're going to start building seminaries. We're going to train our... So the first seminaries started to be built about 10 years after this revival. And the Baptists... and there, there were a few Baptists and a few Methodists involved. And they said, thumbs up. This is where camp meetings come from. And this is when the Presbyterians went from being the largest denomination in the United States to within 30 years, Baptists and Methodists dominate the entire South. And when you think about the South as Southern conservative religious, this is where it comes from. The South was not religious. It wasn't conservative. It was kind of lawless. But these revivals spread all the way through the South. And among, not exclusively, but primarily the Scots-Irish immigrants who were coming down. And so Baptists and Methodists, no matter what their technical origin stories, really come from Presbyterians in, in the South. Um, and as a result, I know I got to, um, the, um, we taught Presbyterians, uh, the churches, Presbyterian churches in Kentucky at that time were in places like Muddy River and Big Gulch and Cane Ridge. 30 years later, they were in Lexington and Danville and Louisville. We became a town church. Uh, 
the Baptists, Methodists. This is also where the churches of Christ and the Christian churches came from. A, Meth a Presbyterian minister founded the movement, the Campbellite movement, the churches of Christ. Um, and the reason they're called that, they didn't mean Church of Christ like Methodist. It was like the Church of Christ like what the Apostle Paul said. They were the Church of Christ, or they were Christians. And, um, okay, one last fact, I'll stop. Um, they're the only denomination created by a census. In uh, the middle of the 19th century, they would ask people what religious tradition, Presbyterian, Methodist, and all this, and then you had all these people that weren't, thought they weren't part of one, and they would ask, what church are you? And they'd go, Church of Christ. And the census takers would go, Church of Christ, one. And the next census, Church of Christ and Christian and disciples were on the list <laughs> as denominations. They never wanted to be uh, denominations. A little bit. It was this notion, it's actually really American. Um, let me make a little analogy. Um, if you go to Washington, D.C., and look at all the symbols, the buildings and all that, you would never know that Europe ever existed. It's, it's Greece and Rome, right? We go back, even though the Magna Carta, for instance, is essential to our American tradition, this is all, you know, we're going all the way back. We're, uh, the same spirit uh, came into the church and they said, we don't want creeds, we don't want all the European traditions. Uh, we want no creed but the Bible. So it's a very kind of American move to say the intervening history is a problem. We're going to go back to the source. Uh, and so disciples and Christians and, um, and such are like that. So I haven't given you lots of theology on this. or I'm mostly just sort of describing sort of the world we live in now. What kind of questions do you have? Or do you want to... I can keep talking, but I don't want to. Let's go back here. So it's, it's really uneven depending on which immigrant groups you're talking about. African immigrant groups generally have not been a lot uh, civically engaged as groups in most places. I'm just, again, speaking broadly. But I'll give you an example of where the things really changed. Funny to live in one of these counties that's now on the, you know, every night. Um, when we had, so we have the Korean population, to speak broadly, is socially conservative and uh, kind of religiously conservative. That's just broadly speaking. You may remember a couple years ago, there was the, the man killed, uh, went into a spa and killed a number of Korean spa workers. Th this has uh, wounded the Korean population, I mean, just deeply, that they were targeted in that way. All of a sudden, uh, again, I'm just speaking descriptively, not normatively here. Young Koreans who come out of a fairly conservative world 
were some of the most effective organizers for Democratic candidates in part to the way often uh, black churches are organized. They called it uh, Souls to the Poles with souls spelled like Seoul, Korea. <laughs> right? And, and this is un, unprecedented in Korean American Christianity. They um, were much more focused on um, their children succeeding in life and uh, being good, uh, uh, careful people. I, I don't know, how, I'm, I'm speaking kind of awkwardly here, but keeping your nose to the grindstone, keeping your head down and getting, you know, and all of a sudden you had this, yeah, you had this groundswell of Koreans who feel like they have to do something because they're getting, they were targeted for murder. Um, I think you're going to see there is a growing Asian American identity, um, Asian Americans and Islanders, AAPI, Asian American and Pacific Islanders. That's now a, a kind of phrase to refer to population. You can figure it out. And so you're seeing Filipinos, uh, uh, Japanese, Chinese, Koreans, Indians, uh, who are working on public political action in addition to their church life. Um, and in terms of like the Presbyterian church, when you look at the demographics of the church, the Presbyterian church is going to be more Korean 25 years from now than it is today. It even could be 50% Korean because Korean churches are, are doing better than the rest of us are <laughs> right now. Uh, so that's a Presbyterian example. Someone else? Yeah. Yes. Koreans, not as much. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. One of my favorite stories is uh, when I got to Decatur. I, so when you're in advancement, you're always looking like for good stories, right? And so I heard about a Burmese new worshiping community in Clarkston, Presbyterian, and uh, one of our students was a field ed student there. And so I said, oh, so I called up uh, my friend Lindsay, who does the new church development, new worshiping community work in Greater Atlanta Presbytery. And I said, tell me about this Burmese new worshiping community in Clarkston. And she said, which of the four Burmese new worshiping communities are you referring to? I had no earthly idea. Now, right now, none of them are huge, but you're right. There's probably going to be a growing population, continued immigration. Uh, uh, I don't know about Burmese. Korean birth rates aren't that high in the U.S., uh, but maybe higher among Burmese. Um, but what it means is, is that Greater Atlanta Presbytery we just, is going to look really different. And the kind of hierarchy or structure that, you know, informal social structure of the presbytery is going to be really different. And it also breaks down categories that we have. So, off, not always, 
but often. In many of these communities, there is no, <laughs> uh, I go to a church that's 80% uh, black, and we're a bunch of theological and social conservatives who vote liberal. <laughs> uh, that's not unusual for black Christianity, right? Uh, I'm not, um, and immigrant communities will probably be, um, again, speaking some of the touch point issues, like the Second Amendment, which pushes people in different ways. My guess is immigrant communities are not going to be nearly as concerned about defending the Second Amendment as some of the uh, other communities have been. Again, I'm just trying to be descriptive here. Uh, so it's going to change sort of the makeup. And I'm actually really excited about that. I find that in the white church, sometimes the boundaries just feel so fossilized. Um, you know, ask me what I think about a single political issue and I get slotted in on the next 40, you know, just immediately. Obviously, if you think that, then you think this, 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 and this. I've, I've been a registered independent my whole life. I can't stand being categorized. <laughs> so I, I find that exciting. But yeah, the, depending on where you are, this, this new church that's coming to life is going to grow and become a, more central to our identity. And for Presbyterians, it's our hope. We, the reason that we have Burmese Presbyterians and Korean Presbyterians and whatever is because uh, Southern Presbyterians in particular sent missionaries <laughs> to all these places and taught them a number of things, uh, set up schools, did education, uh, taught all kinds of things. If you go to Ghana, the entire uh, country school system is basically built by Presbyterians. And why did we build schools? Because we thought that in order to, um, that part of being a Christian was learning the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, uh, and um, why am I spacing? Oh, uh, the Ten Commandments. Can't believe I couldn't say that. Uh, think how you think the faith, how you pray the faith, and how you live the faith. Uh, universal education in the West comes from the church saying you need to know these things to be a Christian so we have to teach every person no matter how much money their family has to read. And we exported that and we set up the American University in, Chi in Cairo, the American University in Beirut. Those were Presbyterian institutions because we believed in those things and it's connected to our faith and now we're receiving the fruits of that back. And I think we should accept it with open arms. It's great. Somebody else. Let's go here. How do you see the future of fossilized Presbyterian? <laughs> Sorry to use that term. It just sort of blurted out. Um, so just like our seminaries and our educational institutions, one of the things that keeps us going is that we were really good at building institutions and building financially strong institutions. So I, I don't know, I've never looked at a financial sheet of IPC, so I don't know if it's true here, but most churches like IPC uh, thrive because of the giving of people over decades, not necessarily what comes in the offering plate on Sunday. Um, what 
that does is it gives us an opportunity to do things that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do. We have resources and we have possibilities if we're open to them. Um, if what we want to do is perpetuate the institution, we'll, we'll be able to do that, but we'll just totally die. So um, I, I think that the fossilized churches need to look for life and, and to align with it. Where is, what is going on? I mean, um, if there, what's the equivalent of the Burmese New Worshiping Community in Birmingham? And how do you not help them, but how do you come alongside them? How do you make friends with them? How do you do ministry with them? I think that's where the life comes. Um, the church I go to that has folks from 18 countries, I told folks last night, can be as confounding as all. There are some Sundays I just want to, it's just, anyway. But there are glimpses of life there that are just unbelievably exciting. Uh, when you look up one day and you see the woman who was born a Dalit in India singing beside the guy from Guyana, singing by the woman from Jamaica, singing by the woman from Northern Ireland, actually, with a pastor who was born in the Bronx. Um, it's really cool. They don't always get along, but it's really cool. And I think that for congregations like this, it's not, you're not going to say, oh, we're going to be a completely different kind of church next week. Uh, or that even that you should be. But I do think that looking for signs of life, looking for where the Spirit is moving and aligning yourself with that and realizing or uh, trying to take, you know, guilty consciences off. Uh, there's just so much good going on. Oh, yeah, we probably need to quit, don't we? Okay. Oh, no, that is not what I'm suggesting. Uh, I'm so I would say two things. One is that it's a long process. You're not looking for a short fix. You're looking for something that emerges out of long relationship. You don't come in with an idea of what's going to happen. You come in and let it emerge. It's the way you make friends in life. You make friends with communities. <laughs> and, you, and it emerges, and it emerges out of common. I, I, mega churches are... Uh, that's a whole different category. I'm actually thinking mostly of small, small communities that you can get to know. And again, I'm, I lived in Birmingham a long time ago. I don't know the current church life in Birmingham. But I can guarantee you there's really exciting signs of life going on under the radar, over the mountain, somewhere. <laughs> there you go.